Oh, maybe. <laughs> Genesis chapter 44 is where we're at this morning. Um, you know, this is a pretty cool chapter. This was um, a unique chapter to study through and, and to prepare for um, this message. And, and really, Holy Spirit took me some interesting places, and I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning um, uh, as we go through this continued account of Joseph um, and this interaction with his brothers is God's doing a work in the hearts of Joseph's uh, brothers and bringing this place repentance. And, 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 and you really, the, the cool thing about it, guys, is yes, we get to see the change this week. You know, we've been looking at, at uh, Judah and Benjamin and Simeon and, and all the other brothers, the, the 11 brothers of, that, that, of the 12, including Joseph, that make up the tribes of Israel. And, and we look back just a, a two, you know, the, 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 the 22 years from this point, really, the, uh, of when um, we first kind of began to read about them and, and where we saw the jealousy and the envy and the hatred that they had in their heart for their younger brother, Joseph, who, who um, they ended up then doing harm against him. They sinned against him. And, and what we see in this chapter, guys, is the same hope that you and I all have is that God can take wretched, ornery, sinful people like us and change us and make us different. And you even come to this point, at least I come to this point in this chapter where we begin to see the change in Judas before, before uh, Joseph, and he's pleading a case for Benjamin, and you're, you're almost going, I don't believe this guy. <laughs> I, I, I know what this guy is like, right? I read about him. He and his brothers threw their own brother into a pit. They were going to murder him. And rather than murder him, they, they figured at least we can get some financial gain out of it, so we'll sell him off into slavery. Could you imagine? You know, I've, I've been in some pretty good fights with both my brother and my sister. I have one of each. And they with me. And, and maybe they thought about doing that to me because I've given them good reason to do so as the older brother. But, you know, even as angry and upset with them and as I've been, I've never thought of doing that to my own brother or sister. And so when we, we read this as a real account and we come to this place where we see the difference in them and, and the change that's taken place, there is that tendency in us to just go, this can't be real. It's such a difference. But guys, that's what God's done with us, is it not? You know what? Um, when God saved me and um, made me different and my life changed and there was all kinds of people that I would run into. As a matter of fact, um, you guys know that in Pueblo they have the there's a, a, a mustard uh, a, a, there's a chemical depot there where um, actually Terry works there where they're destroying all the the, the, the ammunition there right the the chemical ammunition the it's mustard gas isn't it Terry yeah and 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 Terry is actually he he's from um, the rifle area and he went to Washington State to do some work there at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. There's a, there's a company called Bechtel there. I don't know if that's what you work for. It was for Bechtel. But they also do a, 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 there's a, a nuclear waste management program there. And a lot of the guys, that's where my dad worked. We lived in that area. But a lot of the guys who, who work, have worked for some of these big government contractors in that area, some of those guys have come down here like Terry, and worked in this place in Pueblo because there's a similar connection in that industry with these government contractors that work in, 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 in chemical and nuclear waste disposal. Well, I'm telling you that story because there was like several years ago, 
was a, a guy by the name of Jason, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that, who ended up showing up at our church. And he was one such guy. Well, the thing about it is, is this guy, Jason, had gone to school with my younger sister. And he knew me. He knew the before Jesus, Sean. And um, when he showed up here, and he, he actually came with another guy who was involved with the Calvary Chapel that we came from back in Washington, and he brought Jason, this other guy. And when he showed up here, he met me after church, and he said, are you Sean Maher? I'm like, yeah. And he, and he introduced my, himself to me, and then I remembered he was, he was blown away. Couldn't believe it that it was the same guy. And I'm not the same guy, you know? And you guys, as a result of your faith and love, your faith in and love for Jesus Christ and the work that God's done in you, you know, you're not the same, and we're not the same. And, and we need to remember that that work that God is doing in us is a work that God has done in us is a work that God's doing in us and a work that God's going to continue to do. And, and, and because we often see ourselves for who we are, even though we know that we're different, but we still see ourselves for who we are, and we go, we still, God, there's, there's so much, Lord, here left to do. I'm never, we even think we're never going to change. There's no hope. And, and, and looking back to the life that we used to live and the people that we used to be gives us hope that there's still a work that God's going to do in completing us. But even more so, guys, not only an encouraging thing for us, but think about that in relationship to those who are around us, those who interact with us. Because we have to keep these truths in our mind as we relate to other people in this world, going, if there's hope for us, if there's hope for these brothers of Israel, these sons of Israel, these brothers of Joseph, to actually truly change them in the heart and make them a different people, and God's done that for us, then that should be the case also for those out there who are also in this world. And we got to give God, if you will, the benefit of the doubt. I know that sounds weird to say, but we don't. We, we don't do that in times where we we box people in and say, you are like that, you're always going to be like that, and you can never change. So we use that usually when someone's offended us or hurt us, and we keep them at an arm's distance because because we don't want to allow for them a place into our hearts and our lives so that they can happen again. But we leave out the God equation. We don't give God the benefit of the doubt, saying that he can change their lives just like he's changed ours. And that he can, and that he will. And matter of fact is that he uses people like us to be an influence on those other people in this world to do the same kind of work in them that God's done us as God's used other people in our lives to work through them to bring us to the place where we're at and to bring us to the place where he wants us to be. So this chapter is really cool because it does that. But I'm going to start off maybe on, on a complete different side. And I got way ahead of myself. I'm pretty excited about this chapter. But I was doing some research. And in the early 1300s, there was a Franciscan friar an Englishman, a Franciscan friar by the name of William of Oakham. Has anybody heard of him? Probably not. He's probably he's pretty obscure. You may have heard a little bit about him. He was not only was he a Franciscan friar, he was also a scholastic philosopher and a theologian. And um, he's considered by one, uh, he's considered, excuse me, to be one of the major philosophers or philosophical figures of medieval thought. And unless you're like a student of the medieval times, you've probably not heard of this guy. However, his influence is carried on into our modern day world today, his philosophies. And in the world of philosophy, he's best known for two things. First of all, a, a, a philosophical thought that's transcended into the scientific community. And it's a, it's a science, and, and, and his philosophical thought 
has lent itself to a scientific process of thought that's been, you may have, been, you may have heard about this, but, but that's been deemed this, 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 this scientific process of thought has been deemed the razor's edge. And, and the razor's edge is best described, this way of philosophical thought is best described in the, in the realm of science by two of William of Oakham's famous quotes. Number one, one of, one of the quotes he's made famous is, keep things simple. And then in regards to scientific process of thought, it, it, it lends itself, meaning don't think to the most complicated end. Start off with something simple. Start off with the most obvious. And, and, and the other thing that he, he uses to describe this razor's edge scientific process of thought, another quote by William of Oakham is this, don't multiply entities beyond necessity. And, and, and really, those are, those are some good philosophical thoughts that can even be applied to ourselves. And, and, and in um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, one of the, the points, if you will, or one of the sayings that is on all the walls is this, is kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. That's the razor's edge, okay? <laughs> That's a philosophical line of thought. And... and um, but one of the other things that William Oakham is best known for is a philosophical way of thinking called nominalism. You may have heard of that. Nominalism. Which has its foundations in some philosophies of Plato. And nominalism is primarily a position that... I'm not going to get into all this, but it's just very complicated, at least it's complicated for me. But nominalism is primarily a position that denies universals. Which is foolish. And it's, it's, it's a convoluted way of thinking. But the most important thing that I want you to know and what I'm trying to key in today is that philosophical way of thinking, nominalism that denies universals, also rejects the idea, and this is where it really reaches into our world today, it rejects the idea of absolute truth. And you want to know where, that, where, where we're at today and this rejection of everything's relative, right? There's no absolute truth. Blame William of Oakham. And obviously... Satan's behind that whole thing. But people trace that back and go, this is the guy. It's his philosophies. It's his way of thinking that has lent us to this place where they have this idea of there's no absolute truth. And I point this out because there are many people who attribute the beginning of our Western decline, right? Where well, I don't think we're really at the, be the beginning of it now. We're well into it. But there's many people who, who, who attribute the beginning of our Western decline, meaning Europe and, 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 and in America's decline, to the adoption of nominalism, that philosophical way of thinking that leads a person to go, there's no absolute truth. And, and to such people who, who, who study these things out or who have studied these things out and go, yes, nominalism is the foundation and the rejection of absolute truth is the foundation for the decline of, what, of, of the world that we live in today. And two such people, one is a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, right? You've heard of C.S. Lewis. He, he follows this thread and goes back to that, and he confronts this philosophical way of thinking in a book called The Abolition of Man. And that book is really a, a, a three-sermon series that, that was compiled together to put a book. It's an interesting read. If you get time to do it, go do it. The Abolition of Man. In, in The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis deals with the doctrine of moral subjectivism, meaning that, um, again, just like there's no absolute truth, that morality is relative. In other words, what may be moral for you or what may be true for you may not be moral or relative for me, right? 
it's 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 foolishness but that's 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 the the doctrine of moral subjectivism versus the natural law of things the natural order of things and and um in that book the abolition of man that's what c.s lewis is dealing with and that's where he makes this connection and go listen the moral decline of the world that we're living in today is a result of this rejection of 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 um Absolute, that there absolutely is morality and this is what it is and there absolutely is truth and this is what it is. But another man, and this is one that I want to kind of draw your attention to, another man who is a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, uh, his name, uh, another man by the name of Dr. Richard Weaver. And he was a professor, an, an English professor. He taught English at the University of Chicago in the, the late, 40, late 30s and early 40s, 1930s and 1940s. And he wrote a book called this, I just love the idea, the, the, the title. Ideas have consequences. <laughs> Ideas have consequences. And if you're a parent who have ever tried to raise kids, you're like, yeah, duh. But Ideas Have Consequences was the title of this book. And you know, in 1948, that was after World War II, right? It was the end of World War II. The world was changing. And in his book, he confronted this false notion that there is no absolute truth. And he wrote on the very first page an address. Of the first page of this, of this book, he wrote an address to this World War II, this post-World War II academic community that he was a part of. It was an address to them. It was really kind of a, a, a dig at them. And you can imagine you know, where our, 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 our academic system and the professors and everything that's gone since then, right? There's also been a great decline within, within that. Um, but he said this. <laughs> he said... In, his, in the first page, addressed to his own academic community, he says, there is a ground for declaring that modern man has become a moral idiot. There is a ground for declaring that modern man has become a moral idiot. And this is all on the foundation of this, this belief that there's no absolute truth, right? Ideas have consequences. Or, 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 or your, 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 as we look at this biblically, you sow, right, what you reap. You reap what you sow. And if Dr. Weaver were alive today, I wonder what we would say about the state of our moral situation now. Because it's severely declined, as it not, since 1948. I mean, it's been exponentially on this massive decline. And, and, and the overall message of his book is this, is that if you don't live according to the truth, then you must suffer the consequences. If you don't live according to the truth, then you must suffer the consequences. And it's, it's, it's counter-cultural today, right? It's, it's not societally acceptable to believe that. And clearly our society has rejected truth, and in doing so, it no longer believes in consequences. And, and, you know, whether it's fair or not fair, you know, that, that there's been a negative connotation put towards the millennials, this upcoming generation, because of this very thing, is, is that they, 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 um, they no longer believe in any kind of consequences. In fact, it's, and it goes beyond that. It's not just the millennials. Obviously, it's generations that's been going on for a while. And if it act in today's world, it, it, it's this. Truth is whatever you want to believe, right? Isn't that how it is in today's world? And if you believe the wrong thing, you don't have to worry about the consequences because there are none. 
And since moral absolutes don't exist, you can do whatever you please and get away with it. And since moral absolutes do not exist, people believe that you can do whatever you want and get away with it. But clearly, our modern day society has chosen to believe a lie. And the consequences for rejecting the truth are rapidly falling upon us, are they not? I mean, even societally speaking, there's just the natural consequences. We're not even talking about in the, the spiritual realm of things. You see the breakdown of marriage, the destruction of the family. You know, all, all there's this our prison systems and the, and the drugs. And there's just this utter deterioration of the culture and society and the world that we live in because of this very belief. In fact, as we look at this and we consider it in a spiritual level and we see that our modern day society has chosen to believe a lie and the consequences for, the, the, for rejecting the truth are rapidly falling upon us and, and then that they cannot be escaped, we have to consider what it tells us in the Bible, especially in passages like Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, which says this, Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure. Your sin will find you out. Now, you may be thinking, how do I connect that to Joseph and his story and Judah and all these things? But it's exactly what's going on in our account. And I point this out not as, a, as just a commentary of the current conditions that we live in, but also in light of our current story in this Genesis account. Considering this thought, listen, this thought of no truth means no consequences appears to be a philosophy that Joseph's brothers had followed for 22 years. And in doing so, we see that they had been careful to cover up their past sin. And that's how we see that it can even apply to our own lives. Is there hidden sin? Is there something that you're covering up? Something that you're ignoring? If you're doing so, you're believing that if there's no truth, if it's not revealed, then there's no consequences. But that's not the case. In other words, with Joseph's brothers, up until now, they hadn't told the truth and they had reaped up to this point, really no apparent consequences, right? So in one sense, their philosophy, their way of thinking was yielding the fruit that they suspected. As long as we can keep it covered, as long as nobody knows, we're not, having, we're not going to reap any consequences. Furthermore, they, they weren't even afraid, and think about this in your own lives at times, they weren't even afraid of being exposed because the only person who could witness against them was Joseph, and they thought he was dead. But the truth, and this is where God comes in, the truth had to come out. The truth had to come out, both for the good of these brothers, but also for God's plan, for God's plan of salvation. And that's what we see coming to pass in this next chapter. And if you guys look back at the end of chapter 43, we read of how Joseph's brothers, or how Joseph tested his brothers, first of all, first of all to see if, that, if envy and hatred were still in their hearts. Remember, envy is what led to their hatred for Joseph, and it had moved them to sell him into slavery. That's what we were told. So when Benjamin, at the end of chapter 43, was given at this feast five times more than the rest of his brothers... Their, their response revealed, as we talked about a little bit last week, revealed a change in their heart. They weren't envious. They weren't jealous. And we know that because in verse 34 of that chapter, we're told that even though Benjamin had been given more than they had been given, they drank 
and, and, and were merry with him. But as we read on, we see, as we read on into this next chapter, we see that this was not the end of the test or of the testing. And there was a final test that they would be put through before Joseph would reveal himself to them. And this time, Joseph, or God through Joseph, would test their loyalty. He would test their love for their brother. The very thing that they lacked previously with Joseph. No loyalty, no love. But that was being tested now. And so with Simeon now released from prison and with Benjamin's safety secured, Joseph and and his brothers would begin their journey back to Canaan and were told with their donkeys carrying the grain that Jacob their father had sent them for. All was good, right? But But they would not leave, we're told in chapter 44, before Joseph could put into action the next part of his plan. Let's see what that is. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, God, that you would reveal truth to us. And God, that if we've strayed away from truth, that we would turn that we would repent, that we would see that it's not too late. Even as that video reminded us of this morning, Lord, that you allow us to stumble and fall, but you're always there to pick us up, and you're never far away. God, your desire is to lift us up and bring us back into your loving arms, no matter what it is, even if it's just an area of our life. I pray, God, that you would help us to see that there's still hope for us, even though, Lord, we can feel discouraged with our sin, with our failures, with our our shortcomings. And, God, that you're faithful to a good work in us, that you're faithful to complete the work in us that you've begun. Lord, that um, our failures, our shortcomings are not too great for you. And I pray, God, as we see that in relationship to our own selves and we believe it and receive it this this morning, Father, that we would look through that lens into the lives of the people that you put around us. Maybe it's a son or a daughter, a father or a mother, a neighbor, a co-worker. Lord, somebody who we look at and we see their heart and we just go, man. And maybe we even be offended or hurt or, or sinned against by these people, Lord, and and um, we've taken you out of the equation. And in doing so, we've taken ourselves out of their lives. And God, we know that's not what you would have us do. So Lord, show us, God, how to be used by you into the lives of people around us as you desire to do a good work in them too, to draw them unto you for salvation. And also, Lord, to give them new life in you as a new creation like you've done for us. Lord, as iron sharpens iron, I pray that you would do that in our lives as a church body. And God, that you'd purify us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go through these first 13 verses together and kind of stop and then we'll go through it. But it says in verse 40, or chapter 44, verse 1, it says, And he can, commanded the steward, Joseph, the steward of his house, mind you, this is the same steward that the, the brothers had made an appeal to back in the last chapter when they had been brought to Joseph's house the day before. And so he commanded the steward of his house saying, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. And also put my cup, the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Verse three, as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away and then when the men were sent away, they and their donkeys, when they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, 
get up. Follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed practices divination? You have also done evil in doing so. So he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver and gold from your Lord's house? In other words, they're saying, we're good men. We're honest men. With verse 9, whomever of your servant it is found, let him die, and we also will be the Lord's slaves. And he said, no. Or he says, now also let it be according to your words. He whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then, verse 11, each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack, and so he searched, and he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Now, I think it's safe to say, if we're kind of interjecting ourselves into this story and, and maybe perhaps wondering what it would have been like to be a fly on the wall, you know, as the saying goes, to looking into the situation. I think it's safe to say that when Joseph's brothers left that next morning, they were relieved. Don't you think? Not only were they relieved, they were probably filled with great joy as they were now heading back home without anything having gone as they expected. And you remember I talked about that last week. You know, they're, they're in this situation and they're doing the what if thing. What if this happens and what if that happens and we're going to be made slaves and we're going to have all of our possessions taken away from us. And I went back and read about that and the funny thing about it is, is if you read back on it, it was not only them that were going to be slaves, it was them and their donkeys. I don't, I don't know, but it's what it says. And, and I mean, it's like, not only are we going to be slaves, our donkeys are going to be slaves too. And, and I mean, and we do that. It's this unlogical thought process that we go through in the moment of this desperation and the what ifs, and we're going, it's going to happen. And if you've ever been in that spot and, 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 and you've gone through those things and none of those what ifs have happened, aren't you like, whoo? That didn't go at all like what I expected. And actually, that was pretty good. And that doesn't always happen like that, but sometimes it does. But if you've been in that spot, you know. You feel the relief. You feel the joy when something doesn't go in that kind of a situation in the way that you might have expected. Remember, that with their return to Egypt, they were filled with fear from the very beginning. And they were expecting the worst. And when they were taken to Joseph's house, they concluded that they were... That they were being accused of stealing the money that they had found in their bags, and they were going to be forced to be slaves, them and their donkeys. Yet in spite of the guilt they were, they were, they were feeling, because that's, what, that's part of what was going on here. Remember, that's the underlying tone that we're, we're continuing through, is, is that they had this guilt. And in spite of this guilt that they were feeling for the wrongs that they had previously done to Joseph, which led them to believe the absolute worst and to believe that they were finally getting what they deserved, what we've seen in all of that last week is that they were showing grace, right? They were showing grace and they were showing mercy. And all they were showing grace and they were showing mercy, they were given blessings in the place of deserved judgment. 
in the place of deserved judgment. Furthermore, they had not um, been arrested for stealing the, the grain money. Um, Simeon, who had been in prison, was released to them. And now they were safely on their way with Benjamin, and their bags were full of grain. But guys, there's an important lesson for us to see this as we see that there's some circumstantial things going on here, right? And see, these feelings and relief and joy um, that, that, that um, came to them were as a result of their circumstances, of their changing circumstances. And um, as quickly as their circumstances had changed to bring them these feelings of relief and joy, the changing circumstances that they were now going to face would also change the way that they felt. But the mercy, the blessings, and the favor that was shown to Benjamin was only first part, guys. It was only first part of a plan that was designed to bring Joseph's brothers to the place of repentance by confronting them with the truth of who they were. You ever had God do that? Work within your circumstances to confront you with yourself. Here's a real simple one I think that all of us is, ha, have done. You realize you're a little impatient. You pray for God to give you patience. And that very next day, maybe minutes later, you're confronted by your circumstances and given the opportunity, usually by someone who's cut you off or um, won't help you at like Home Depot in the aisle when you're trying to get your stuff. You get this perfect opportunity because your circumstances have changed to exercise patience. And you're like, right? And, and, and God confronts you with your circumstances about who you really are on the inside. And, and ultimately, that has to take place in order for God to do a change as we submit to him. And that's what's going on here. He's confronting them with the truth of who they were. And, and in doing so, through this plan, through these set of circumstances, Joseph, or God through Joseph is always also coming to his brothers and he's confronting them of their past sins. They knew it, right? They knew it here. They knew it here. They knew what they were like. They knew what they had done. And even though they were hiding the truth, it did not make the thing untrue, did it? So Joseph commanded the steward of his home, we're told in these first verses, the steward of his house, to, to put the money in the sacks of grain and to put his silver cup into the youngest brother's bag, Benjamin's bag, his, his, his grain, uh, 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 his, his, um, his bag of grain. And then... Once they had left the city, he sent his steward, he said, get up um, and, and go. And he sent them to overtake him, them, these, son, these brothers of his, and to charge them with theft. It was a big, that was a big deal, by the way. It's not like in our broken down society today where you get a slap on the hand and go, don't do it anymore. I mean, this was a big deal, stealing, especially this particular cup that was being deemed for this particular purpose. And, and I don't want to get into all that. Uh, um, it's unclear. It, we know that Joseph wasn't into divination or witchcraft or anything like that. So just get that clear. But it was, not only that, the silver cup was uh, uh, like the signet ring. It was, a, it was a, a sign of Joseph's authority. It was, a, it was a, a thing of significance, more than just the value of being a silver cup, you know, something of, of, of monetary value. It was a big deal to accuse them of, of stealing this. And, and, then, then, and then, according to verse 5, Joseph gave him specific words to speak. And this is going to play on 
It's important to know this now because in the, in the upcoming chapters, when, when Joseph is, is, reveals himself to his brothers, he makes another statement that connects to this and we see big picture. So remember for now, he said this, ask them why they had repaid evil for good. Now, Joseph's brothers must have been surprised, I think, when they saw the steward and his guard following them. I mean, they're, 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 they're probably walking their donkeys, they're carrying the grain, they're all happy, they're joking around, and, hey, can you believe that, you know, and having a good time. And, and then maybe, you know, maybe one of them, whoever it was, looked over their shoulder and like, what's that? That's the steward of the house following us. Could you imagine how that must have, I mean, these guys who are already, you know, feeling guilty about what they've done, thinking now that they've got off scot-free, right, that they're, Sin is still hidden that they've not received the consequences for in any way or any light. They're probably thinking, Whew, we dodged another bullet. You ever been in that spot? And then all of a sudden you look behind you and it's like, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> I got lots of stories, so I can't, I'm not going to, I don't have enough time. <laughs> oh, I wish I could tell you this story now. I'll tell it later on another day. I'll just say this. The Bible says that we're not to fear the government or the authorities. Why? Because we're there, they're there for our own good. Well, if you're, and the Bible basically goes on to say if you're on the wrong side of the law, that you should fear them. And there was a time in my life, I don't know about you guys, when, but there was a time in my life that whenever an officer got behind me and I was driving, it was like, I had fear because there were warrants out for my arrest and I mean all kinds of things. I don't have that now. But these guys were living in that place and the steward and his guard were now behind them, coming up behind them. And I, and I imagine that had caused some, some reaction in their minds and in their hearts. And from their response in verse 7, we see ultimately that they were caught off guard by the guard uh, by the uh, caught off guard by the accusation of having this rewarded evil for good by stealing their master's silver cup. In fact, they when they proceeded to defend themselves against the accusation, we see how they even argued that they weren't these kind of men who went around stealing things. Why are you accusing us? We're not these kind of men that go around stealing things. We're honest men. We're good men. And then in verse 8, they sought to defend their character by bringing up how they had told the steward, the same guy, hey, we're the ones we told you about the money that we had previously found in our bags and we even tried to give it back to you. So if they were not, in other words, if we're not honest men, we would have kept the money. We would have said nothing. Come on, we don't have your silver cup. But more importantly, we see that they were so quick to defend themselves, so confident in their innocence that they went on to declare in verse 9 this, that if even one of them was found with the cup, let that guy die off with his head and the rest of us will become your slaves. They voluntarily offered their own punishment if that was going to happen. Yet because Joseph ultimately, and God as well in all this, is, the, is, is his providence and his sovereignty is working out on all this, Joseph, we know, was not interested in revenge or punishing the brothers, that the steward rejected this offer and said in verse 10 that only the person with whom the cup is found, only he would be made the slave. He said the rest could go home. But guys, understand this. This very thing, this very word given by the steward, which was probably handed down from Joseph, this is what would set the stage for a decision to be made by his brothers that would expose or reveal 
their hearts and lead them ultimately to this door of repentance. Now, in spite of their confidence, I managed that each one of them had a degree of uncertainty and anxiety that was being felt by them as the steward began to search their grain sack. They let it down immediately, and they opened it up, and they began to search it. And you can imagine that one by one by one. As a matter of fact, we're told once again that from the oldest to the youngest, the process was being taken place. And I imagine that the very first, when the presence of the money was found in that very first sack, there must have been some fear. I think their anxiety over the situation, then went to fear. Oh my gosh, not again. How'd that happen? But when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, we see, we know that despair overcame them and the brothers were sure that this was the end. So according to verse 13, they rend their clothes, they tore their clothes, and it says, each man returned to the city with their younger brother. That's, that's, the, that's the key verse. That's the pivotal verse. That Everything hinges right here on that. They went to the city with their brother. But, and that's significant because when we remember that the steward was only going to hold the one who had the cup accountable, we see that they made a decision. And in their decision to go back with, with Benjamin, it was a demonstration. It was a demonstration of loyalty. A demonstration of loyalty from men who had betrayed their own other younger brother. You see, loyalty was not a characteristic that was in these guys 22 years previously. But yet they demonstrate loyalty, and this time even in the face of danger. And this is something new considering Joseph's brothers had previously demonstrated no loyalty to Joseph when they'd thrown him in the pit, plotted to kill him, and only spared his life when they figured out they could sell him and make some money. But in light of this, their decision to go back with Benjamin and face the consequences together, we see that God, through Joseph, had penetrated into the hearts of these brothers who had been selfish and self-centered. In fact, we read on, when we read on, we see that in addition to being willing to stand with their brother, they were also willing to share in his punishment, even after all these things, for the wrongs that had been done. And as Judah spoke for them, he will see that he confessed that God, he, he makes his profession and he says that God had allowed for this to come upon them because of a previous wrong that they had done. In other words, just like we read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, they knew that what they had sown was now being reaped. Their sin had found them out. And in verse 14, we read on, and it says, So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell on the ground before him. In verse 15, Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? In other words, he says, there's no excuse. There's no defense. Why? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slave, both we and he, speaking of Benjamin, also with whom the cup was found. 
But Joseph said, he said, far be it for me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So Joseph's brothers were certain that the seeds of sin that they had sown some 22 years ago were now bearing fruit. But more importantly, they were willing to suffer the consequences. And this is why Judas said that because of their own guilt and because of their wrongdoings, that they would all willingly take part in the punishment that was to be cast on Benjamin. But in doing so, these brothers, what they did, guys, is they exampled a true heart of repentance. It's an example for us. They exampled a true heart of repentance. In that, a repentant heart is always characterized by a willingness to confess the wrong and then accept the consequences for the wrong that was done. That's biblical repentance. Confession and acceptance. Such was the case with Joseph's brothers. Considering there was no cry for mercy in here. No defense. No defense of self. Only agreed acceptance of the consequences as proclaimed by Judah when he said this. Here we are, my Lord. Or here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he, and he also whom with the cup is found. Likewise, guys, our own repentance, think about it, our own repentance from the sins that we commit must be executed or done in this same manner. Meaning, if we have wronged someone, we must make it right, whatever the cost, without making any excuse. Without that, there's no true repentance. Or if we have hurt someone, we must humble ourselves, acknowledge our fault, and ask for forgiveness without protecting or defending ourselves. In our household, and it may not be true in your household, and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a condescending statement, it's just a statement of fact. In our household, and we've raised our kids this way, that when we, we tell them, when you ask for forgiveness, we say, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? There's an apology and an asking of forgiveness because when you do that, there's, it takes out one word. It takes out the ability to speak one word, and it's the word but. Because without the, please forgive me, what usually happens? We've all done it. I'm sorry, but. And that's not taking place here, and that's not a true heart of repentance. It's a justification. It's an explanation at the very least and not a willingness just to leave it humbly in the place where it is and allow God to be the God that works in that spot. So if we've hurt someone, if, we, if, if, if we've done some wrong, we must humble ourselves, acknowledge our fault, ask for forgiveness without this protection, without the buts, without defending ourselves. That's what Joseph's brothers are doing here. Now, as I mentioned, there's another side of this. As I mentioned before, it's important for us to see that even though Joseph possessed the power to punish his brothers, right, for the very wrongs that they had done, he never did. And clearly we see that Joseph had, a, had never, in any of this, had a plan of ill towards his brothers, a plan for revenge or a plan to give his brothers what they justly deserve. Never once. And we clearly see that, that, that even though Joseph had been betrayed by them and had suffered many things for them for many years as a result of his sin, we see that by his example, he brings to life the words found 
in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, which says this. Speaking to us, he says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. In other words, what he's saying, speak and act as those who are under mercy, who have received grace, the law that gives freedom. Because, he says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then he makes this statement that's so foreign to us in our natural state. But he says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Man, i got to check my heart all the time in that, guys. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is important for us to hear because when we are the one who has been sinned against, our hurt feelings, can they not, can lead us to the place where our lack of mercy is then justified. They hurt me. And we justify that lack of mercy. And we go, we want judgment over mercy. And we justify it because of the harm that's been done to us. And the place we, 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 we can also move in that to the place where we feel justified to make the person who has wronged us or the person who has harmed us feel some kind of hurt that we have felt even before we will consider forgiving them. But over and over and over again, God makes it known to us. He makes it clear that it's not our place to see to it that a person gets what they deserve. It's not our place. It's not our place to make sure that a person gets what they deserve. Rather, God calls us to be merciful. He calls us to be His ministers of grace, the Bible says. To freely forgive like we've been freely forgiven. To show mercy and look to restore. Here's the key. And this is what we see with Joseph. To look to restore a person back to the place that they have fallen from through confession and repentance. Even if they've sinned against us. And this is why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and he says this. He says, Brethren, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. He says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love God and love others. Now, I want to point out that Judah's response in the rest of this chapter to Joseph, having said in verse 15, to go in peace because he was going to keep Benjamin, further reveals this change in the hearts of these guys. It reveals selfless love that had replaced the envy and the hatred that had taken hold of Joseph's brother's hearts. And as we read Judah's, Judah's, uh, Judah's response in the last part of this chapter, it's, it's important to remember this principle. It's important to remember that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. You've heard that said before, right? The, 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 the Old Testament, or the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And so as we 
looking at the Old Testament, knowing that it's that it's 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 um, the New Testament concealed, we have to keep some things in mind. In other words, with these Old Testament accounts that we're studying and reading about, we have to understand that there are spiritual lessons that point us to. The, the, the accounts in the New Testament, spiritual lessons that example the grace and mercy of God that has come to us through Jesus Christ. And in doing so, the nature in the Old Testament, the nature, person, and mission of Jesus Christ is revealed to us. We must look at it with that lens, with that eyes also. And with this in mind, we can see truly a spiritual picture in Judah's willingness to intercede for and even take Benjamin's place as the surety of and, and that, that, that these things point us to Jesus. Judah's actions point us to Jesus, who is our intercessor. The Bible says who's become our surety, standing up for us. And when we consider that Judah is the one doing this, we should also remember that's not by coincidence that any one of the other brothers could have done it, but yet Judah does this, and it reminds us of the thing, that Jesus was from the tribe of, of Judah, through the royal line of David. And like Judah, who was willing to lay down his life here in this instance in order to please his father Jacob and to save his brother, it tells us, the Bible's clear to tell us that so too has Jesus come to please our Heavenly Father in laying down his life for us, his brother. And so in verse 18, as we wrap this up, it says, Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in the Lord's hearing. And remember, this is in response to, Hey, I'm just going to keep your brother. You can go in peace to your father and be at home. It's all good. You're okay. No harm on you. Just go ahead and go. And then Judah came near to him and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in the Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord, verse 19, asked his servant saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to the Lord, We have a father, an old man and a child of his, uh, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servant, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. (laughs) And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is, is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then verse 27, your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces. And of course, this is a reference to Joseph. And think about that as, as Judah's there accounting all these things and and then he says and i have not seen him but if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave now therefore when i come to your servant my father and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die 
So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Verse 32, for your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. Let the lad go up with his brothers, for how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would come upon my father. So standing before Jacob or Joseph in defense for Judah or for Benjamin, Judah re- reviewed the, their, their recent family history and reminded Joseph of the facts of the situation, facts that Joseph was very intimately aware of. We know. And Judah's intent was to make a case for the release of Benjamin so that Benjamin could go home to Jacob. And in doing so, Judah makes several points. And the first is the fact that, 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 that Benjamin was only there because Joseph had required him to do so. In other words, it's kind of like saying, it's your fault. <laughs> it's, it's almost, we kind of hear that, we're here because you commanded it. And if that hadn't happened, because Judah was suggesting if Benjamin hadn't been required to come, perhaps they wouldn't be in this trouble. Perhaps it would not have happened. But he had. And so Judah had made it clear that if Benjamin was to remain in Egypt, then that their father would die. And, 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 Jacob even, or, and, and Judah even quoted Jacob's own words, words that, that Jacob had spoken and sent any sons. But you know what these were? These were just the facts. These were just the facts. And this defense, this kind of defense, would have been expected by Joseph. But we read here that Judah did something unexpected. Don't you love it that when God's done a work in you and you don't even realize it and, it and it's revealed when you do something unexpected? It's like, wow, God's done something to me. Look, that's not what I normally would do. I'm different. Or someone around you notices it and it's like, you're different. I didn't expect that from you. That's this. Judah does something unexpected. And in his final appeal, he made an offer to be a substitute for his brother Benjamin and remain in Egypt on his behalf. In fact, Judah even begged, almost it looks like he's begging, as I read it there, to become Joseph's slave and said in verse 33, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Justin, if you want to come up, we're going to wrap it up with this. And and again, guys, it's hard for me in my natural state of being, and I know this is true, to not find some kind of ulterior motive behind Judah's actions. But in light of this, it becomes clear that Joseph it becomes clear to Joseph that Judah had changed. And that's what we see here. Judah had changed. And and he was not the same man who he had who had previously sold his younger brother Joseph into slavery. And if you look ahead just to the next chapter, verse 1, chapter 45, verse 1, we see that when Judah declared himself to be surety for his youngest brother and he willingly offered to take his place, that this touched Joseph's heart. So much so us is that Joseph could not restrain himself and he cried. And Joseph knew that his brother could be trusted now and um, that the time had come for Joseph to reveal himself to his brothers. That's next week. But in closing, guys, I want to point out to you Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. Because in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, it tells us that Jesus has become our surety. Jesus. 
Jesus has become our surety. Literally, it says a guarantee. That's what that is. Of what? Of a better covenant. What covenant? The covenant, the Bible that tells us, has been established in his blood. A covenant of grace. Salvation by faith through grace as we believe in Jesus Christ. Put our trust in him, our hope in him. He's become our surety. He becomes our guarantee, meaning he has assumed the responsibility for us. You've ever had to assume responsibility for somebody? Especially a bunch of knuckleheads like us? Jesus says, I will. I stand up for you. He stands up for us. He's our surety. He's our guarantee to make sure, he says, that we will come to the Father. And this is what Jesus declared in John chapter 14. Go and read it. And this is because... And, and, and this is because Jesus took our place, right? He died for us on the cross. And because he's risen from the grave, not just dying on the cross, but because he's risen on the grave, it tells us that he now lives to make intercession for us daily. And because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost anyone and everyone who puts their faith in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this word, this encouragement, for this hope that we have in you through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that we don't have to stand alone or by ourselves and make our own defense before you, Father, but we have an intercessor, your son, Jesus Christ, who's offered himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute that's taken the place that we deserve. We're so grateful, God, for your son, Jesus. We're so grateful, God, that you love us so much that you sent him to die for us on the cross, making a way, God, for us to become a partakers of this new covenant. Or it's not based upon what we've done, or what we don't do, or who we are, or who we're not, but upon who you are, your faithfulness and your love. Father, as we see that and recognize the gift that you've given to us freely, Lord, I pray, God, that you would do this work in us of making us men and women who love you and love others, and love one another. And God, that we would understand and have hope this morning that you're going to be faithful to complete the work in us that you've begun. And Father, that you're faithful and able to do the work in the lives of people around us, changing them to be like your son Jesus, just like you've done for us. Lord, we surrender our lives to you this morning, God, and ask again that you would change us. Sanctify us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.